everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Um, welcome to my brand new true crime podcast, No Comment. Um, so yeah, that's right. Another true crime podcast. I thought, why not? What's the harm of adding another one into the mix? Um, maybe you can mix it up a little bit from your usual um, content providers and, and give this one a go. So I, like so many of you uh, listening today, um, a huge true crime enthusiast which I think I guess is a really weird thing to say but I've always been really fascinated by true crime so I thought why not start a podcast and um and see how we get on and see if you guys like the content that I put out there so I'm thinking my plan for the podcast is to keep it mostly true crime related um I'm thinking occasionally I'll do uh, an episode looking at different groups of people different religious groups things like Scientology um, I'm really interested in also, uh, the Westboro Baptist Church, if you've ever heard of those guys, they're pretty wacky. Um, Louis Theroux does a really good three-part series on the Westboro Baptist Church, so if you haven't seen that, definitely give that a watch. It's really, really good. So I'm thinking of maybe covering them at some point. Um, and then other cults, the Manson family, which I guess also sort of leaks into true crime, but things like that. Before we kick off with today's case, um, I will say that all the opinions expressed in any of my podcasts are uh, my own um, based on the research that I've conducted for each case. You may not inevitably agree with everything that I say, which is absolutely fine. I think that's a good opportunity to open up the comment section and get into a discussion about each case and, and what you guys think and, and whether you agree with any of the conclusions that I draw. So um, with that, I think let's get started on our first case. So the case I've decided to initially look at is the Soham murders of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman which happened in 2002 which is I can't believe it's going to be almost 20 years ago it'll be 20 years um next next August which just makes me feel so so goddamn old <laughs> um the reason that I've decided to do this case as my first is I thinking back this is the first time I really remember being engaged with a case and watching the news all the time looking for updates um on on the murders when so it was around the same age as the girls when when this first happened and I just remember running back from school and speaking to my mum and just being like is there any updates on the case um what's happened have they found any new evidence da, 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 da. and um yeah so I was really super engaged um in following this case when it was when it was happening um, and funnily enough, my mum, who does consider herself to be quite an intuitive person, um, which I'm not sure if I always agree with, she uh, identified who the perpetrator was as soon as they came on TV, as we'll see um, as we progress through this case. They're definitely not shy about speaking on camera and speaking with journalists and, and so on. So um, as soon as they came on to give an interview, which we'll look at as well, my mum was just like, that's the person that did it. They're responsible for the, for the murders. And it turns out she was right. So there you go. Um, so I've done quite a bit of research on this case. So I think it's best to release it in two parts. I'm going to do the first part, obviously, today. And then next week, I'm going to release part two, which I'll talk about more towards the end of this podcast. Um, so let's, let's do it. Let's get into the background of the case. Um, it was a warm summer's evening on August the 4th, 2002, in the idyllic town of Soham, which is situated to the east of Cambridgeshire. Jessica Amy Chapman was visiting her best friend from school, Holly Marie Wells, as, as Jessica had just got back from a two-week holiday with her family in Menorca. She had bought Holly a lovely necklace from her trip, bearing a pendant that read love, and was eager to give it to her friend. Um, now it's so funny and it's really really sweet that she did this and I actually remember every time I used to go on holiday I would always have to buy presents and bring them back for my friends so I can totally relate um, with her there. Before we continue with this story I think it's important to look at the um, girls background and, and how they first met. So they first met when they were in nursery and they were around four years old and apparently they struck up an instant friendship. Although the girls were very very close they did have very different personalities. So Jessica was much more um, into sport and especially loved playing football, which she played for the Soham Town Rangers under-11s team. 
She also loved swimming and was very, very good. And um, I think she represented her county a number of times um, in sw swimming tryouts. She uh, was a very pretty young girl. She had shoulder length, brown hair and brown eyes. Um, she was also very, very outgoing and very bubbly. And everyone commented on how she would just be able to get on with absolutely anyone, no matter who they were. So like Jessica, Holly was also very outgoing. She was a little bit more shy and timid, but still a very friendly character. She was very vivacious, intelligent, and she had straight blonde hair and bluey green eyes. She enjoyed writing and was very good at English and excelled in her classes. Uh, she also enjoyed music and played the cornet, which I really don't have a clue what it is. I think it's like a small horn type instrument, but she was good at it, whatever it is. So like Jessica, she was also a very accomplished swimmer. And that's a really, really important point that you need to remember as we're going to be revisiting that later on in this episode. So both girls were commented to be very mature for their age, very, very responsible and very respectful to their parents. So they would never let their parents down um, if they were running late and they were going to be home late. They would always call to tell their parents where they were um, and what time they would be back. So when Jessica arrived at Holly's house that day on the August the 4th, she found that their other friend, Natalie Parr, who they also knew from school, had a sleepover at Holly's house the night before. And so the three girls hung out all day listening to music, uh, playing different games, playing on the computer and just chatting, chatting the day away and having a great time. Later that afternoon, Natalie left the two girls, Holly and Jessica. Both the girls were in great spirits that day. As I said, Jessica had been on holiday for the last two weeks, so they were really eager to catch up with each other, see what had been happening around Soham. And um, Jessica filled Holly in about her holiday, and um, they were just so happy to see each other. So that day as well, Holly's parents, Kevin Wells and Nicola Wells, were hosting a barbecue for their friends, Rob and Trudy Wright. So the Wells were actually extremely social and outgoing couple and often held events such as that at their home. So the house was pretty energetic and lively that day. Lots and lots going on. Um, Holly's older brother, Oliver, who was, who was 12 at the time, also had a friend over and he was playing with him in this room. So there were people everywhere. The house was lively and full of life and just everyone was having a great time. Shortly after 5pm, the girls went downstairs to speak with Holly's parents and their guests. They had decided to wear their matching number seven Manchester United tops because they enjoyed coordinating outfits and were both huge Man U supporters. In particular, they loved David Beckham. And um, at that time, that was Beckham's shirt and he was the captain of uh, Man U football team. When they went down the stairs, uh, Nicola gushed as the girls came into sight and was thought they looked so so cute in their matching shirts and begged them for a picture the girls wanting to capture this moment were very keen to get their picture taken and so um nicola asked the girls to go underneath their clock in the hallway and they took a picture the time was four minutes past five realizing that they were much happier upstairs with their own company um instead of hanging around with a bunch of adults which let's face it when you're 10 years old you really don't want to do the girls decided to return upstairs and continue playing on the computer. So subsequent, subsequently, and during the investigation, it showed on the Wells' telephone bill that the, the internet was live from 11 past five to 32 minutes past five that evening. And I think back in those days, it used to sh come up on your telephone bill to show when you'd log on to the internet, when you'd log off to dial-up system I'm not sure if you remember those horrific noises um but so they were able to see exactly when the girls were online and when they when they logged off so the girls were quickly becoming bored of just being stuck in the house and they decided to venture out and enjoy the last few hours of daylight that day importantly though neither of the girls had spoken to Holly's parents to tell them that they were going out and they just left the house which wasn't really a particularly big deal and it's not because they were just going around the corner it's not as if they had to you know announce or get permission or anything like that but they would usually just let their parents know but I think that day because they were so excited to see each other it probably just slipped their mind so the girls go inside the sports center 
and they purchase some sweets and they are caught on the CC, the sports center CCTV cameras, leaving the premises at around 17 minutes past six. And then they head off from the sports center towards the direction of Sowen Village College, which is the town's secondary school. They make their way across the schoolyard and towards the home of the college's caretaker, who is Ian Huntley. And he lives in a small house, um, which is just on the edge of the school premises with his fiance Maxine Carr. The time now is approximately 30 minutes past six. So back at Holly's house, the barbecue is starting to wind down in true English style. It had rained intermittently all evening, but that didn't do anything to dampen the party spirits. So Nicola was just saying goodbye to her guests and called up the stairs for the girls to come down and say goodbye as well. So she calls up the stairs, uh, but there's no response, which is quite unusual for the girls. As I said, they were both really respectful and um, would do anything for their parents. So Nicola goes up and walks into Holly's room and it's empty. She goes over to Oliver's room and asks if he's seen the girls and he says... No, I haven't seen the girls for a few hours. So at this point, she's trying to keep calm, but obviously there's that sense of panic that's starting to creep in um, because she can't can't find the girls and she doesn't know where they are. So she looks at the front of the house and calls for the girls, but there's nothing, no response. She returns to the house and speaks to her husband, Kevin, um, and explains that she can't see the girls and she doesn't know where they are. Kevin joins his wife and they repeat the search that they've just that Nicola's essentially just done, looking outside the house, calling for their names, looking in the back garden, even though obviously they've been there most of the afternoon because of the barbecue, looking around the house. They're just nowhere to be seen. They can't find the girls. So they think, okay, this is a little bit concerning. But Holly's curfew wasn't until half past eight. So they thought, we'll wait until we get to that point and um, hopefully she'll she'll be home and there'll be nothing to worry about. 8.30 comes and goes and there's no sign of either girl. At 8.45pm, Nicola makes the very difficult call to Jessica's mother, who is Sharon Chapman, to find out whether the girls have gone to Jessica's house. Now, the reason I say that that's a difficult call to make is obviously she doesn't know if the girls are there, and if they're not, she knows that she's going to be really worrying Jessica's mother. And also, the girls are at her house, so she obviously feels responsible for them and um and at at the moment she doesn't know where they are so she calls up Jessica's mother Sharon Sharon answers the phone and um she explains what's happened and unfortunately Sharon says no the girls aren't here either and then she obviously starts to panic slightly she tells Nicola that she's going to give Jessica a call because Jessica's got her own mobile phone and I think I don't know whether Holly has, and I can't, I haven't seen anything to say that she has had a mobile, so maybe she didn't, but I would have thought that both girls did have um, phones. Obviously, in those days, we're talking almost 20 years ago now, there wasn't the same fear of giving children phones that there is today in that you couldn't go on the internet, all you could basically do was text and ring people, and that that was essentially it. They weren't sort of, you know, as dangerous as they are day with people going on social media and and it being um much harder to regulate what kids are looking at so sharon comes off the phone and she tries to call jessica's mobile but it goes straight to voicemail so now she's really really worried because that never ever happens she always makes sure that jessica's mobile is charged up and jessica never turns it off if she's outside the house and away from her parents and obviously back in those days the batteries on phones would just last for ages, weeks, weeks and weeks. You couldn't do anything on them. So that was the, the best thing about them is that the battery lasted for so long. Everything else was terrible. So at this point, both sets of parents are extremely worried and they decide to go out and look for their daughters. So Kevin, who's had a few beers at the barbecue, was over the legal limit and he takes off on a push bike with his son, Oliver, to search so in for the girls and speak to people and see if anyone's seen them and um, the chapmans so sharon jessica's mother and leslie is jessica's father they take off in separate cars and go in different directions to search so in to see if anyone's seen their daughters at 10 p.m 
no sight of either girl and no one has heard from them. Um, both sets of parents had spoken to various people in Soham when they were conducting the search, but no one had seen their daughters. So now they were extremely worried and agreed that it was time to call the police. The police immediately respond. Um, like they immediately launch into a huge police hunt, like literally as soon as the call comes in. And actually this is one of the biggest police operations that there's been in British history for a missing person. It was absolutely huge. I think over 400 officers were assigned to conduct a full-time search for the girls. And um, the news of the disappearance travelled extremely quickly around the very close-knit community of Soham. And people came out in their absolute droves to help with the search effort. Kevin and Leslie continued searching for their daughters the whole night and finally called it a day around 6.30 in the morning due to pure exhaustion and just being absolutely battered by the whole experience. So the disappearance of Holly and Jessica was soon to become one of the most publicised and biggest cases of all time and it received almost daily coverage from all major news stations. Like, as I said, every time I came home from school pretty much, it was on one channel. It was on, you know, one of the either one to four or it was on a lot of the Sky News channels that ran 24-hour news coverage. It was just literally everywhere. So on Monday the 5th of August at 3.30pm, the parents made one of, made their first of several deeply emotional pleas for their girls to return home in the press conference. On the 6th of August, David Beckham recorded a plea for the girls to come home. He said, please go home. You're not in any kind of trouble. Your parents love you deeply and want you back. So that photograph that Nicola had taken of the girls in their Manchester United shirts was seen to be the most publicised image um, in connection with this case and was shared all around the country as well as all around the world it was it was literally everywhere as the days went on the police uh, also released further photographs of the girls and hoped to humanize them in the eyes of a captor if that in fact was what had happened to them and hoped that that would improve their chances of being returned home safely to their parents so from the moment the girls went missing, the police were definitely very outwardly optimistic, um, particularly with the families, of course. They wanted to try and keep their spirits up, but also to the public at, um, as well, because they wanted to keep the image of these girls alive in the public's heart. So it, it kept making front page news and people kept on the, would keep looking out for these girls and try and get as much information in as they possibly could. However... This case sadly followed um, a couple of very high-profile cases, which I am planning to cover in, in, the, in the coming weeks, which is the case of Sarah Payne and Millie Dowler. And unfortunately, they had very tragic endings. And so the police were cautious that this may sadly go the same way. So by Wednesday, the 7th of August, the police were absolutely swamped by the amount of information that was coming in. Intelligence was coming in from all angles and they would, it was just absolutely drowning them. So they had thousands of calls, undertaken tons of door-to-door -door inquiries, stopped over 700 cars, um, as well as obviously continuing to conduct the search of SOAM to try and find something of the girls. So at this point, they suspected that maybe a captor was responsible for their disappearance and so they decided to look at all of the registered sex offenders um in and around the area and ended up speaking to over 260 people um but unfortunately there was no leads and it didn't take them anywhere thursday the 8th of august the cctv footage of the girls at the sports center was released to the public um it's not the best quality CCTV. Obviously, this was you know nearly 20 years ago. Cameras weren't very good, but it was something. And it showed that the girls were there um, at that time, which was six, 17 minutes past six on Sunday, the 4th of August. So again, it's helping the police to piece together their timeline um, and move and the girls' last movements before they disappeared. On the 10th of August, there was a reconstruction of the girls' final movements that was broadcast to the British public, to actresses that looked very much like the girls, actually, um, were 
lined up to to do the reconstruction which must have been very hard for them and I don't know exactly what they were told um and how much they knew about what they were doing but it it must have been very difficult and I've read somewhere that the girls said that they took part in the reconstruction because they were just desperate to find the two girls which was obviously really really sweet so as I said there had been so much evidence coming in um and absolutely flooding the police and their resources and there's been several interviews since this investigation was conducted that just show the amount of strain that was on the police at the time and I think there was a lot of strain coming from the people in the public as well who wanted answers and they just weren't getting the information that they wanted so inevitably with that amount of information coming in there's going to be a number of false leads that the police had to sift through in order to get the information that they um, that they needed so Staffordshire Police, which is a neighbouring constabulary to Cambridgeshire, contacted them to say that they think that a man who is still at large may be responsible for the girl's disappearance. So this guy, um, I don't have any details for him, but he had been recently investigated for abducting and indecently assaulting a six-year-old girl. And they thought that this was the guy that was responsible for Holly and Jessica's disappearance. They said that he um, drove a green Ford Mondeo and had recently been sighted, or the car had recently been sighted, in the Cambridgeshire area around an hour north of Soham. So the police had to, had to investigate this. This, w- this could have been a very promising lead, but unfortunately it didn't go anywhere. Um, a taxi driver, a guy called Ian Webster, reported a green Vecha or Peugeot with two screaming children on the evening that the girls went missing. So he reported seeing a vehicle, didn't know which one it was, could have been a Vecha or a Peugeot. He said it was swerving violently in the road and there was a guy driving who was sort of swatting back at two girls in the back seat who were screaming and, and crying. So when this came in, the police were, again, absolutely just buried by the workload. They had to trace each vehicle that matched this description, and that ended up being over 10,000 that they had to look at up and down the UK, which is just a huge amount of work. Um, However, it turned out that Ian Webster's clock in his taxi was an hour too fast. So at the time that he'd seen the girls, according to the police's timeline that they put Together, they would have been walking around so and so another false lead creating a lot of work for the police a more sinister lead which also turned out to be false came from a jogger who on the night of holly and jessica's disappearance late at night um i think it was nearly 11 o'clock he reported seeing disturbed mounds of dirt and a, a horrific screaming noise so he reported seeing it just outside of Newmarket, so that was very close to where Ian Webster had seen the car. So initially the report was shelved due to the amount of um, reports that were coming into the police that they decided not to investigate it straight away. However, given that Ian Webster had reported the suspicious driver in the same area, the police decided to look into this report more to see if there was anything to it. So on the 13th of August, the police met with the jogger and he took them to the two mounds of dirt and they started to excavate the area. This was absolutely painstaking work, um, as well as obviously being extremely tense. Um, There was over 100 police officers that were conducting a fingertip search of the two mounds. And of course, no one wants to find inevitably what they're actually looking for, which is parts of Holly and Jessica. And so it was very very nerve-wracking and very very tense work by 4 a.m in the morning the first mound had been fully excavated and it turned out to be nothing but a badger set by 6 30 um the that morning the search of the second mound was complete and again it was another set so another false lead and obviously very awful for the um the parents of holly and jessica who were given the information that the mound had been located and were basically up all night sat by their phones waiting for the news to come in and um, must have been a very tense and very horrible evening for both of them 
the police said that it was likely that the screams that the jogger had were just badgers going at it, fighting all the other things. So by this point, there was an intense, and I mean intense amount of pressure on top of the police to get results. They had, it had been days, almost two weeks since the girls had originally disappeared and they had basically gone without a trace. They hadn't got any information that they'd released to the public about their whereabouts. And so they were desperate to progress the case and, and move things forward. Due to the lack of forensic evidence or any other evidence coming in, they were extremely reliant on witness evidence. And of course, that had led to the false leads that, that we've just looked at. But also that was the only way that they were going to move things forward. So they continued to appeal for witnesses to come forward and give accounts um, if they'd had any interaction with the girls. And one such witness was Ian Huntley, who, as I mentioned earlier on in this podcast, was the caretaker at Sewan Village College. So Huntley comes forward on the 5th of August and reports citing the girls um, on the night that they went, on the evening that they went missing. He says that they... Did come, they came to his house and they wanted to see whether his fiancée, Maxine Carr, was okay because she'd recently found out that she wasn't going to be kept on at their school, um, the girls' school, and they went to a school called St Andrews Primary School. She wasn't going to be kept on as a permanent member of staff. So after the school holidays, her contract was, um, well, her contract had been terminated and she wouldn't be coming back after the school holidays. Huntley said that the girls came to his door, basically said that they were very sorry that Miss Carr hadn't got the job, and then they headed off towards the town centre. Live and well, and as he said, in good spirits. So let's just take a pause there from our timeline. I think before we go any further, we need to have a look at the background of Maxine Carr and Ian Huntley. Ian Kevin Huntley was born on the 31st of January 1974 at Grimsby Maternity Hospital. So, really lovely sounding place, um, Grimsby. I've never been there personally. I'm sure it's lovely. And apologies to any listeners that are from Grimsby. It's just a really horrible name <laughs> of a place. I just don't understand why you would call somewhere Grimsby, but I'm sure it's lovely. So he, uh, Ian Huntley was born to his mother, Linda, and his father, Kevin. Kevin worked as a gas fitter and he earned very little money and say that the family had to lodge with Linda's parents in order to save money so they could eventually move out and get their own house. Um, Kevin worked tireless, tirelessly to support his family and soon they were able to afford the rent on their own place. Um, and moved a few miles north of Grimsby. Ian's younger brother, Wayne, was born on the 16th of August 1975 and completed the Huntley family. Kevin was a very, very strict father and Ian did not have a good relationship with him. He absolutely doted on his mother, however, and always took her side if there was an argument between um, his mother and his father. Ian was also fiercely jealous of his younger brother Wayne, a trait that would actually follow him into adulthood. Ian was very unpopular at school. He was intensely disliked by his pupils um, and he was bullied relentlessly. The children in his school would call him all sorts of horrible nicknames such as the White Cliffs of Dover and Spadehead, which I think is on account of the fact he has a very large pale forehead and a strange sort of square shovel shaped face apparently he also had a reputation for being a tattletale and that obviously didn't do much um to help his popularity in in the classroom but his fellow pupils would say that in any given opportunity he would go and just tell on all um all the pupils to the teachers and get them all in trouble and say that obviously um, I also found that in his, so in Ian's early years, there was an allegation of him being beaten and sexually assaulted. There wasn't a huge amount of information on this, but it's perhaps something to, you know, keep in, in mind as we move through this case. So Ian moved to different schools on multiple occasions. 
because he moved around with his family moved around quite a bit and i think as well it was to do with the fact that he was so unpopular and, and bullied so relentlessly that he would move to a different school to hopefully have a better experience but it just didn't work out that way the guy was just not a likable person nobody seemed to like him it's clear that he didn't have the easiest childhood um he was bullied relentlessly he had a very strict and authoritative father but you know that can be said for people all over the world and much worse in fact it's you know he had by all accounts a loving mother um and his father did care for him um he may have been strict but he did definitely care for him he went out and worked for his family he put food on the table so it could have definitely have been worse it's reported that at one stage the bullying and physical abuse um encountered by Huntley was so bad that he attempted to commit suicide by taking a whole pack of paracetamol painkillers his mother found him on his bed he was barely conscious and he was rushed to Grimsby hospital where he had his stomach cramped so as Huntley grew up reached his teenage years things were still looking pretty bad he was still very unpopular didn't get on well at school wasn't academically gifted he finished secondary school at the age of 16 uh, didn't have very good grades and scraped around five GCSEs there were also reports to say that he spent a lot of time by himself due to not having any friends there wasn't much else for him to do um, and there was a lot of reports to say that he frequently would torture animals. So he would blow up dogs and cats that he found on the on the street. So I guess his neighbours' pets with um, with bangers. He would pour petrol on them, burn them alive. One source even says that in his very early years, he strangled a puppy to death. Um, so, I mean, obviously these are very violent tendencies and symptomatic to people that go on to commit violent acts in their later life and often on humans and no longer on on animals and so again something is definitely worth keeping in mind and um, about Ian Huntley's past. So after leaving school um, Ian Huntley went out into the world of work to see what he could accomplish obviously he wasn't academically gifted he didn't have very good grades so he went out to see whether he could make something of himself for him, he got a string of low-skilled factory jobs, which he found to be very unsatisfying. Um, he worked in a fish wholesaler where he would gut fish. He stacked shells in a, in a quick save, which was a... I don't even think they're around anymore. I think it was like a local convenience store. Um, I haven't seen one in absolute years. I could be wrong, but I haven't seen one in ages, so I don't actually think they exist anymore. He stuffed babies' nappies in a factory where nappies were manufactured and um, he also worked at the local Heinz factory which proved to be one of his um, longer stints in employment and he seemed to get on okay there because both his mother and father worked there and so he used to just hang out with them. His unpopularity in his younger years definitely followed him into his later years as some of his former colleagues commented on the fact that he was very unpopular at work. And um, and so when he started at the Heinz factory, he just hang, he just used to hang out with his mum and dad the whole time and didn't really speak to anyone else. So when he wasn't working, Ian would frequently go out to the Grimsby local pubs trying to chat up and pick up women. So during his school years, whilst he was generally quite unpopular with the girls, he, just, he was unpopular with everyone didn't do very well with girls but he would try to chat up girls that were significantly younger than him so when he was around 15 16 he would try to pick up girls that were around 11 and 13 so very very inappropriate so when he was in the bars Huntley would invent wild stories he was such a fantasist and I think this was obviously because his actual life was quite depressing and sad and wouldn't really do much to impress a girl so he would come up with all these crazy stories um one of which he said that he was a pilot in the RAF and he had to leave because of his asthma which obviously never happened and um I think the closest that he ever got to becoming a pilot in the RAF was uh when he used to spot planes and um so so yeah that was obviously a massive lie 
as with his school years, he had a particular interest in younger girls and found that they were much easier to manipulate and control and would fall for his lies much easier. And so this is the group that he would generally go for. So it was now clear that he was older. So he's in his, he's around 20, he's in his 20s now. It's clear that his um, sexual endeavors were extremely inappropriate and predatory. Um, so at age 20, he led, lured an 11-year-old girl into his bedroom after meeting her at a fun fair. He tried to kiss and pet the girl inappropriately, and she resisted. So he ran over and locked the door and basically said to her, you're not going anywhere until you give me your virginity. On doing this, the girl started to basically flip out, screaming, going mad. And so he quickly opened the door and, and ushered her out. Um, and he didn't want his neighbours to overhear what was going on, obviously. So thankfully, the girl got away um, safely. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case for everyone that came into contact with Huntley. In uh, May 1996, he was accused of abusing a 13-year-old girl. Then in September 1997, he was accused of sexually abusing another 11-year-old girl. During this spree of sexual abuse, Huntley was reported to the police eight times and was investigated for rape on four different occasions. He was never charged um, due to the lack of evidence. So obviously this was such a different time um, in terms of investigating and bringing charges in rape cases. And it's only very recently that there seems to have been a real shift in supporting victims who come forward to report sexual assault crimes as in in the last sort of five years and um, before that there was so much victim blaming that went on um much and because so much of the evidence for these cases rests on um witness evidence and there's never usually a lot of tangible evidence so things like cctv and you know dna and things like that it's very much their word against the perpetrator's word and it used to always fall very disproportionately in favor for the for the perpetrator who'd often get away with these sorts of crimes and this was absolutely what helped Ian Huntley get through all those years without having a single charge um, seen through against him. So in 1994 aged 20 Huntley met Claire Evans at the Heinz factory um, where they both worked. So within only days of meeting her Huntley had decided to propose and in a decision that she would definitely come to regret years later Claire said yeah. Soon as they were married, um, Huntley became extremely abusive towards Claire um, on both the physical and mental um, level. He abused her on a daily basis and would fly into absolute rages um, over the smallest issues. Claire was often seen covered head to toe in bruises. So just two weeks into their marriage, Claire decided she just couldn't put up with the abuse um, anymore and left in reaction to this news when she told Huntley that she was going to leave him he decided to stage a fit and started convulsing on the floor and foaming at the mouth obviously she was extremely worried about his welfare and so she called an ambulance when they came and um, assessed him they found that there was absolutely nothing wrong with him and that he'd basically just been putting it on so this routine is something that he would rely on um, later down the line and something that we'll see later on in this case to get him out of situations that he just he isn't comfortable with so during their very 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 short marriage um claire would often turn to ian's younger brother wayne um for comfort and support and so following the end of their marriage and it was likely this was going on during their marriage wayne and claire began an intimate intimate relationship with each other the news of this completely destroyed Huntley, who was wildly jealous of his brother anyway. And the fact that his brother had taken Claire in his eyes from him. And it wasn't even that he was particularly, he even wanted to be with her. I don't think he was particularly bothered that the marriage had come to an end, but he just did not want Wayne to to be with her. And he didn't want it to seem that she'd left him for, for Wayne. Um, and so that's what people would be thinking in, in their local area. And so they'd... Um, Wayne and Claire started a relationship, but to but Huntley wanted to stop this at every given opportunity. And it was actually years and years later that he that Huntley would agree to signing the divorce papers and so they couldn't get married for many, many years. 
So we now know that one of Huntley's other victims, uh, Katie Bryan, fell pregnant shortly after moving into Huntley's bedsit and gave birth to a little girl. So whilst she was with Huntley, she suffered a torrent of abuse as he routinely punched and kicked her. And on one occasion, he even threw her down the stairs. And I actually think this was when she was pregnant. So Huntley would subject Katie to horrific um, attacks and would often rape her. When she found out she was pregnant, she found the courage to leave Huntley for the sake of her little girl. So on the 16th of May, 1998, Huntley was out drinking in the pubs of Grimsby. He made his way to the Hollywood nightclub, which was one of the only nightclubs in the Grimsby area. And so it was obviously very popular. So he basically used to just go to this nightclub and sit around the bar, get steaming drunk and just watch the women. Um, come in and just try and pick a victim basically someone that would either willingly get with him or someone that he had to force forcibly get with so he took his usual spot at the bar and spotted a very attractive young woman he made his advances um but these were swiftly rejected by the women who basically told him to fuck off and get lost and that she didn't want anything to do with him um as the club was empty which is around 2 a.m huntley followed the girl home as she left the club and she went down an alleyway which was known as Gas Alley as this was the fastest route to her home. It was a route that she'd taken multiple times and so she was very confident taking it even though obviously she'd been out drinking and was and was alone. She, she wasn't sort of scared about going this way. So as she went, made her way down the alley very close to her home, Huntley pounced on her from behind, grabbed her by the throat and threatened to beat her up if she made any noise. He proceeded to violently rape uh, this poor woman with his hand over her throat. When he'd finished the attack, he basically just tried to have a normal conversation with her as if what just happened was completely sort of consensual and and just, you know, that it tried to have like a nice after sex intimate conversation with her so which is just crazy and i think it just shows his mindset he just it wasn't living in reality he was living in his, in his own version of reality so she seeing a opportunity to flee when he was trying to speak with her runs off runs home she immediately um reports the attack to the police and the next day it was on the front of the local paper so hunley actually hands himself in when he sees that there is that the media has got hold of this and that it was in, it's in the local paper because he thinks he's going to get found out anyway. So he hands himself in. But despite this, and despite his confession, the police decide to drop the case due to lack of evidence. So I'm really not clear as to why that happened. I mean, he's confessed to the crime. <laughs> I don't understand how there is a lack of evidence and there isn't too much information about it but basically he's got away with it again so whilst he was on remand Huntley claimed that he was on the verge of a nervous breakdown he was struggling to speak he was hysterically crying and dribbling everywhere however as soon as he found out that the charges were dropped he seemed to make a sudden and instant recovery so although he was never convicted um the word of the rape charge spread very quickly around Grimsby Grimsby was, I've read it's quite a small community and so everyone found out about it um he lost his job he lost his home uh his limited friendship group wouldn't speak to him and so things really weren't looking very good for um huntley as he soon became the town prior then one fateful night by complete chance he was to meet his future fiance and as it turns out partner in crime in the none other than the hollywood nightclub the same place that he'd literally just preyed on that poor girl and had just been charged for, for her rape. So Maxine Ann Cap um, was born on the 16th of February 1977, also in Grimsby Maternity Hospital, to parents Alfred and Shirley Cap. She later changed her name to Carr, apparently because she absolutely hated her father and she didn't want his name anymore. And so she dropped Cap and started using the name Carr. Her father apparently left when she was around two years old and had very little involvement in their lives so Carl was a very very insecure very self-conscious person in her early years she absolutely hated her appearance in her teenage years she would go on huge eating binges in an attempt to make herself feel better later causing herself to vomit 
so initially she developed severe bulimia and that turned into anorexia slightly later down the line. At school, Carl was not academic and struggled through her GCSEs. However, she did manage to secure good grades in English and food tech. Carr desperately wanted to become a teacher. She went on to study at Grimsby College and completed a diploma in general care. She left college at age 19 and started work as a junior care assistant in a local care home for the elderly. However, she got paid absolutely nothing, um, especially back then. I think it was just, you get absolutely nothing for care jobs. And so she found that really demoralizing. And she also didn't think it was in any way helping her towards her dream job, which was to become a teacher. So she decided to quit and started working in a nearby fish farm. So her former work colleagues would comment on the fact that she would just keep herself to herself. She never wanted to get involved in anything social. She never wanted to go out um, really with any anyone from work. She started having relationships with men in her early 20s. And by this point, she'd managed to get her anorexia under control and so she felt more secure in herself although she was generally very quiet and shy her former boyfriends have commented on the fact that as soon as she would have a couple of drinks she would just have a completely different personality she'd be up on the tables screaming shouting flashing her boobs at people and just really be a, a completely different person and actually um, her boyfriends would comment about how embarrassed they would be that she was behaving like that. Uh, they also said that she was very into S&M sex and always wanted to be dominated by her partner and often told them to hit her during, um, during their intercourse. So then one night in the summer of 1998, two worlds would collide and um, change the path of each other's lives forever. They met at the Hollywood Club and the attraction was instant. Carr and Huntley started to spend every night with each other and they'd go out drinking in their local pubs. The instant connection is perhaps an indication of the pain that both of them had felt in their previous, in their early lives growing up. Um, neither were very popular at school, neither were where they wanted to be professionally and so I think they were just very dissatisfied and unhappy with the cards they felt they'd been dealt with life so far and when they finally found each other it seemed to just fit for them so soon enough car moved in with Huntley um which is not unlike the patterns of um his former relationships where he would meet be super intense and they would move in straight away but as soon as she moved in Huntley's true aggressive side started to surface and he was extremely abusive to car and treated her very very badly he would say awful things in front of his co-workers to her. He would make about doing all the housework, making dinner. If she did what he deemed to be an unsatisfactory job with the housework or the dinner, he would kick her, punch her in the face, kick her down the stairs, uh, kick her in her stomach. One witness alleges seeing Huntley repeatedly punching her car in the face whilst having her in a headlock. When he tried to intervene and called Huntley off, which caused him to fall backwards, Carr screamed up and told the man to get off and not to hurt Huntley. So despite all the abuse that he gave her, she was absolutely besotted by him and just stuck by his side. So at one stage, um, Huntley, who would frequently treat, uh, cheat on Carr, left her for a younger school-aged girl, again, fitting with this pattern of behaviour going for younger girls. She was absolutely beside herself with grief. She just, what, all she wanted was to be with Huntley and, and be by his side. She was completely trapped by him. So she tried to take her own life. Huntley seemed to get a sense of pride from this and took her back immediately. In June 1999, Huntley and Carr decided to leave Grimsby and the bad memories of dysfunctional childhoods and adolescence them and moved to Scunthorpe. Huntley borrowed some money and bought Carr a £4,000 engagement ring and proposed to her. She obviously said yes straight away. She was absolutely infatuated by him and was so happy that the man that she loved more than anything was wanting to commit to her in this way. For a very short time, life seemed to be very good for these two. Um, Carr was really excited about the wedding. 
um, Huntley took the remaining money and that he'd borrowed and bought a red Ford Fiesta. And they and he was in a job that he was earning decent money. I think insurance sales or something. He was earning a fair amount of money. And um, and so life was okay. Life was good. Um, however, the loan company where he um, who he borrowed the money from to pay for the car and the engagement ring soon caught up with him, and he couldn't afford the repayment. So they decided to move away again in a hope that the loan company might just stop chasing for payment. This time, they felt it was time to move to a new part of the country, somewhere they could get a completely fresh start. They could forget about the troubles of their past. And so in 2001, the couple moved to a town of Soham. Hanley's father, Kevin, had helped him secure a job at the local secondary school. And Carr was able to secure her dream job, finally, of becoming a teaching assistant at the primary school, St. Andrews. She was super, super excited about starting here. It was the first time that she'd been in a teaching role. And so things were looking good for the couple again. Things were looking really, really good. So by the summer of 2002, the couple had integrated really well with the tight-knit community of Soham. They were taken in by the town for the first time in their lives. They felt like they belonged somewhere and that they were part of the community. However, everything was about to come falling down in August 2002. So I'm going to stop there because I'm conscious I've been going on for for absolutely ages and um, I don't want to make this podcast too long. So I think we're going to stop it there and that will be part one of the podcast. Next week I'm going to release part two that's where we're basically going to return to our timeline and we're going to look at the investigation and the girl's disappearance um we're going to look at the outcome and the trial in in quite a bit of detail as well and and then basically what happened afterwards so please do tune in next week uh, for part two of the so and murder case thank you so much for joining me this week i really hope that you enjoyed this podcast um, if you, as I said, if you want to make any comments about anything that I've spoken about so far, then please do feel free to comment or follow me on Instagram and leave comments there. If you want to leave any feedback, then by all means do. I want to put this out um, for you guys. I want to make sure that the content that I'm putting out is good and that you're enjoying it. So if there's anything that I can do, you know, it's a learning experience for me too. Um, if there's anything I could do better, then just feel free to um, leave some feedback. Thank you.